So good evening, everyone. This talk is going to be some real-time dharma, um, fresh, hot off the presses. <laughs> I ha- once had a, an advising teacher advise me and us, the other trainees, to never uh, teach using stories, recent stories. So last night... Um, real-time dharma last night um, and yesterday during the day and last night Dave and I were discussing you know I was doing my usual kind of obsessive what should I teach tomorrow night what talk should I give should I do this talk should I do that talk I'm looking at all the talks saved on my computer I'm running it by Dave And uh, I'm basically subjecting him to what often happens. He he deals with, has to deal with this a lot with me when we teach retreats together. There's always a point, sometimes it's the first talk, sometimes it's the last talk, where I go, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, Dave. What should I do, Dave? And I go like I sort of spin out into this, this doubt madness, doubt uh, you know, the, uh, the sort of confusion and scatteredness of doubt. And Dave is so kind and holds the space for me and offers suggestions and even tells me that he likes this about me. He <laughs> likes my ambivalence and weirdness, you know, like doubt. He says he let, and always calms me down. So I went to bed last night having not decided what to talk to give, what to teach, and that is not a good way for me to go to sleep. (laughs) Not a good way. So, you know, as I'm sure you can all relate to, there was some time there where I was tossing and turning, um, really, you know, sort of agitated, uncomfortable, confused, the mind racing, and it just yucky, couldn't get comfortable, not feeling good in my body. And suddenly, it occurred to me, (laughs) oh, this is doubt. This is doubt. Like all of you who I've been hearing about with great inspiration today and in the past days, who are having these awakening moments to what's happening when it's happening, that, yes, happened to me too. It's like... I get lost too, we get lost too. We get caught up in these defilements too, what what the Buddha called defilements, kalesas, K-I-L-E-S-A, kalesa, which is, that word is often, um, it's translated as defilements or stains or what else? Defilement. I use the word defilements, uh, afflictive emotions, afflictive experience, dukkha, you know, affliction, kalesas, these difficult, wounded mind states. And they're so, um, it t- it, sometimes it takes some time to remember to recognize them because when, when we are filled with doubt, 
or anxiety or fear or jealousy or anger or sadness, grief, uh, depression, it, they fill the mind. They fill the mind. This is part of the nature of the kalesas, the defilements, is that they suffuse the whole mind, kind of darkening it like ink. You know, that ink that just spreads out into waters, filling, filling all the spaces in the mind, taking up all the light and blocking the heart. And so it can be, we get, this is one of the reasons why they're so captivating and we get caught up in them identify with them, enchanted by them. I was just talking the other night about uh, being enchanted by the movies of our mind. Well, we get also, uh, we cling to, we identify with, we get lost in the kalesas, these experiences. And so the action of our mindfulness practice will eventually wake us up to what's happening. But they're captivating for a while, and they run us along, they take us along for a while. And they're really awful. It's really awful when that happens. So doubt, for me, is a friend, a recurring, recurring uh, defilement that I'm really quite familiar with. So it's sort of funny that it took me so long. I think it's because Dave was being so kind to me, and I was really just trying to think my way out of it. You know how we do that? This is when we do this with doubt in particular, when we try to think our way out of doubt or argue with doubt with our rational thinking, analytical minds, we're just going to go around and around and around. Very wise teacher said to me one retreat when I was um, caught up in doubt, as I said, a very familiar experience. She said, Don't don't, you can't fight doubt on its own turf. That is the turf of the mind. Doubt, this is part of the nature of doubt. The spots on the leopard of doubt. It has this quality of, it's just going to come up with whatever argument to um, justify whatever the underlying wound is. Because it's funny how doubt always appears when we're having a hard time in other ways, right? Like, did some of you feel a little doubt at the beginning of the retreat, the first day or two of the retreat, when there was a pain in the body and a kind of confusion about what to do and, and, a, and a lot of time spent not being aware, like bringing yourself back and back and boring Nothing to do, as Dave has said many times. There's, we're having a hard time. Doubt in our choices, in our, you know, in in um, what's happening, in the efficacy of this path, or whatever. It's, it's very naturally arises when we're not feeling well, and so instead of doubt is a way of like. Um, it's almost a way, I think it's a way, it's on top of whatever's underneath, the discomfort, the fear, the, you know, it's like a way of regulating it almost. But we just get spun around, spin around and around inside the walls of doubt, bounce around in the walls of doubt, and it, nothing ever gets solved or resolved. This is not how to work with or face doubt. By 
arguing with it or by trying to think your way out. As I rediscovered last night at midnight, <laughs> when, I, when I awoke, well, I'll, I'll go back to that story. First, I would like to read you a little bit from Saida Utejaniya. This is his very first book, little booklet that is called Don't Look Down on the Defilements. They will laugh at you. His whole, his whole strategy, you know, as a teacher is he wants us to recognize the defilements as defilements. He wants us to know, use our mindfulness practice to be aware of when doubt is present, when fear is present, when all of these afflictive emotions, any, any greed, hatred, delusion, or any of its brothers and sisters and offshoots are present. And it's always lovely, you know, to sit with him. It's refreshing to sit with him because people will tell, try to report to the teacher all these great stories of what they've seen and their insights and this and that. And he kind of is sitting there with his eyes half shut, almost looking like sleepy or bored and nodding. And then when someone reports being filled up with doubt or anger or, and, you know, being, just being filled with the horrible energy of these emotions. He leans forward in his chair and he says, yes, yes, yes. Good practice. <laughs> Recognize the defilement. See the defilement. It's the first noble truth practice. See the suffering. He says in, under the section called, what are defilements? Defilements are not only the gross manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion, but also all their friends and relatives, even the very distant ones, um, exclamation point, exclamation point. <laughs> See if you have ever had one of the following or similar thoughts cross your mind. Those lights should not be on at this time of day. His behavior is so irritating. He should not have done that. I could do it a lot faster. I am a hopeless meditator. My mind cannot even stay on the rising falling for one minute. Yesterday, my meditation was so good. Today, I'm all over the place. Wow, this was a wonderful sit. Now I need to be really mindful so I don't lose this feeling. <laughs> I must stay in the Dhamma Hall. Others will think I am lazy if I don't. <laughs> this familiar? I need an extra portion of potatoes today because it's good for my health. <laughs> He's going on and on. Yuck, the salad has onions in it. <laughs> No bananas again. <laughs> Who is responsible for cleaning the toilets? Why is this yogi walking here? My spot. <laughs> they shouldn't be making so much noise. I heard a few of those today. I, they shouldn't be making so much noise. There are too many people here. I can't meditate. Someone is sitting in my seat. She is so pretty. He walks so elegantly. Okay, I mean, honestly, I could go on. All such thoughts are motivated by defilements, exclamation point, exclamation point. Don't underestimate them. Don't underestimate them. Great book. Okay, so defilements. Now, <clears throat> it is said that doubt of all the different defilements. Remember today, earlier today, I was talking about the hindrances uh, to, um, 
to mindfulness. And there's like five classes of them, but they're all just, uh, there are classes of defilements that are in the teachings. And so doubt is among those of the top hindrances. And it's said that that doubt is um, the hardest hindrance to work with because it's the one that tells us we don't have to practice. All of the other ones, lust, greed, hatred or ill will, aversion, um, restlessness, anxiety, and uh, um, sloth and torpor, we can practice with them. It, It might occur to us to practice with them, but doubt is the one that's saying, this doesn't work. This practice doesn't work, so stop doing Why are you doing this? This is not doing any good. Obviously, it's not doing any good because you feel like shit right now. <laughs> Obviously, it's not doing any good because all you can do is think about, ew, the onions, or who's cleaning the bathroom, or why are they making all those noises? When we are really just caught up in the defilements, and doubt can arise, and doubt is kind of the worst one in that way. So... Over the years of getting to know doubt, some of us are more, um, you know, we our conditioning makes us more, you know, uh, uh, have more of a tendency towards one or the other of these hindrances or defilements that might come up more often for us. Doubt has been a constant theme for me for a long time, and not just doubt in the practice, but self-doubt, lack of confidence. And I, I, I have some conditioning that has sort of added to the natural tendency of the human mind to go to doubt when things aren't going well. And, um, it, you know, not, not so long ago, a couple of weeks ago, I was hearing an interview on uh, Fresh Air with a woman who was a, a, one of the directors, writers, producers of the Samantha Bee show. And uh, she was being interviewed about her career. And apparently she had started out as she was an academic and she had gotten a PhD in some sort of comparative religions or something. But she had always loved comedy and wanted to do comedy. And it just took her some years to find her way there. And so the interviewer asked her, why did it do you think it took you so long to get into the comedy scene to to uh, get you know go from just a, the hobby of stand up to thinking that you could really do it as a career? And she said, "Well, I'm a woman." She said, "Well, I'm a woman," and that totally resonated. He's like, "What? That's right. This is one of the things that I think many women inherit is this lack of confidence, this lack of trust in." The, the things that we want to do in the world, the ways that we can, you know, be confidently go out in the world and do our stuff, it's just hard. It's been hard. Even though I'm sort of a loudmouth know-it-all, I still have that and other kinds of conditional self-doubt that I'm working with that come into play. So there's a lot of different threads going into doubt. And, of course, the antidote to doubt is confidence and faith. 
And so how do we find it? When, when our minds are suffused with the defilements or doubt, it's, it's impossible to see where we could find any faith. I mean, it's, it's all about anti-faith, right? So last night when I was recognizing doubt in my restless, sleepless mind, um, I have had a lot of practice practicing with it, have a lot of practice working with it, you know? Uh, remembering that instruction about not getting out of the mental arguments. And so I just softened around knowing that doubt was there, just as we've been all doing and during the course of the retreat and putting my attention down in my body and sensing into the tightness and the contraction and the stress, seeing if I could bring in some compassion. The compassion comes from knowing the conditional nature of the doubt, you know, forgiving myself for it, which is so important for the next part, which is um, to sink down and and ask, you know, what what is needed here? What compassion for compassion to come in and say, how can I care for this? How how can I meet or care for this underlying need of that seemed to be about wanting to be certain, wanting to know what to do, wanting to not let you all down, wanting not to let Dave down, uh, wanting to fulfill my role here. And, in, and inspire you all in the way that I want to. I mean, all of that down in there, that need to do well and to know what the heck I'm doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? The unknown is difficult. Doubt will spring up and confusion from that not knowing state. So when I ask that underlying sort of wound, what what do you need? What do you need? I sort of looked out my little window to the beautiful stars and it's said, what do you need? And all of a sudden, these sort of stories, inspiring stories from the Dharma, from the Buddha, from my past, stories that I sometimes tell in Dharma talks started to come in, flood in. And I, I realized, it's like, oh, that's what I need. I need inspiration. I need inspiration. That's the antidote here to doubt. Inspiration that inspires confidence. So I thought I would share some of those stories that came to me, some of those reflections, teachings, and insights, and, um, and hope that they help inspire you as they have inspired me. Because it all turned around after that. I made some frantic notes and I went to sleep. One of the things that's really inspiring to me is that the Buddha himself struggled with these defilements. The Bodhisattva himself was filled with them and one of the famous stories of this, of how he, how he worked with the defilements in his mind, is from the night of his awakening. The night of his awakening, uh, when 
before the uh, before his actual awakening, he got completely hammered by <laughs> by a, a number of different defilements. You like you name it, it came at him, and it came at him in the story and in the teaching. It's in the personage of of Mara, M A R I, who is like the the embodiment of the defilements. It's like that voice in your mind that's telling you, you don't know what you're doing. You'll never solve this problem. How could Dave even put up with you? I mean, you do this to him all the time. <laughs> of course you suck. You, say you can never, you can't, you don't, you shouldn't even be doing this anymore. This is it. This is the last one. This is the absolute last one <laughs> I'm ever going to teach because Dave will never put up with me again or whatever. That's Mara, that voice. And so Mara came at the Buddha as he was sitting underneath the tree, practicing diligently. And the Buddha, with his you know, sustained concentration, was able to deflect all of the defilements, all the lust thoughts, all the dancing lady images, all the, you know, um, the anger thoughts, all the jealousy thoughts. All the, you know, they were all deflected by his uh, practice. Steadiness of practice. In fact, it, you know, Mara appears a lot after his awakening in different suttas too, and that's interesting. It's like Mara often shows up during a teaching that he's given, giving, and the Buddha will always say, Oh, hey, buddy. Hi, Mara. Come on in. Sit down next to me. And by the way, I see you. And then Mara disappears when seen, which is a deep teaching. It's like, all we need to do is see it. This is the first step in being able to free ourselves from the affliction of these defilements. So anyway, back to the night of his awakening. The last, the last arrow that Mara threw at him, the last defilement that he threw at him was this defilement of doubt. Mara came up to the Buddha and said, Hey man, hey you, what makes you think you deserve freedom? He went for the self-doubt. He went for the, that lack of confidence that, you know. And so in the story, the Buddha did his famous mudra, his posture, which you see in statues, not, not that one, but in lots of statues of the Buddha, my favorite one, where he touches the earth with one hand. He touches the earth, grounds himself with the earth, and he says, as the earth is my witness. And Mara disappears, and he's awakened in the next moments. He's awakened. That was the last one, was doubt. And he found his answer in the earth, the bigger because doubt lives with me. It's all about me. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. This doesn't work for me. It might work for you, but it doesn't work for me. And so when Buddha was faced with doubt, he said, it's not about me. As the earth is my witness, the fact that I'm a child of this earth means that awakening is accessible to me. It's my birthright. It's here and now. 
And you know, that story brings to mind for me all the times, I think I shared this with somebody in an interview today, how even when I was a little girl and up in, and up, you know, as I got older and even before I came to this practice, I always felt like the earth could hold my pain, like it was big enough to hold my pain. And I always, I would sometimes lie down on <coughs> ground, the ground in some natural spot and just imagine the earth holding me and caring for me and taking my pain away. And many of you that I've spoken to have um, talked about how this natural place, this beautiful, beautiful nature here, this earth has been so helpful and supportive and comforting to you in that way. It's like big enough, big enough to, um, it, it helps us to find that space that's bigger than just this, this troubled mind. Yeah, the Buddha did say that defilements are temporary visitors to the mind. And the mind is spoken of as being naturally luminous, or what we would call mind-heart chitta. The mind and heart are naturally luminous, unstained, and then the defilements come through and stain them. There's a teaching called the simile of the cloth where the Buddha um, talks about, just like compares the mind to, the defiled mind to a, um, you know, the mind caught up in greed and hatred and delusion to a, um, a cloth that's dirty. But then we can purify the cloth, we can wash the cloth and get, bring it back to its pristine state free of stain and defilement. And that's what this practice does, that's what the middle way does. How does the cloth get cleaned? You're finding out for yourself through the purification of practice. Clear seeing, letting go, facing the defilements, working with them in skillful ways, including mindful investigation with beginner's mind, gladdening the mind, inclining the mind to the heart of care, and being through this process, being able to let go of the small pictures and opening up to the bigger picture, the more complete picture or view. So in that act of touching the earth, the Buddha opened to this bigger truth, this big mind, as the Zen folks call it, the big mind of the world. And in, when we are, when we can find that place, what I called presence previously, um, the arguments of the little mind just disappear. Just disappear. They have no hold. They're held with kindness and understanding, but they have no hold. <clears throat> you know, and, and, and coming back to nature, the, this, the, the, how nature can help us find it, find presence. It's because it, it is it, you know? 
And so I don't know about you, but when I am walking in nature, when I'm in a nature, natural place like this, it's the stillness, the stillness that nature has, which is about it's not needing anything. It's not restless. It's still. It's in harmony. It's, it's not craving. <laughs> nature is not craving, you know. It's free of craving, and that stillness comes into me, resonates with my innate stillness that we all have because we are of nature. And, uh, and, and, and this is where I can find some peace and some space around the difficulties of mind. Buddha Dasa said, this body came out of nature, is part of nature, never departed from nature, and belongs to nature. So give it back to nature. That will be a big relief for you. So I'm also inspired by the outcomes of this path. The outcomes of this path. The joy of understanding is a big inspiration to me. It's a big confidence builder on the path. And today I was sitting with some of you and being inspired by you and how these insights are starting to come. The practice is working through and on you and you're starting to see some things and you're starting to see the ways that your ideas and assumptions are limiting you and it's starting to become apparent how you can let them go. Dave and I sometimes joke that it kind of doesn't matter what we say or do up here, that the practice will do its magic. It will do its magic. And so just even reflecting on what we've learned, this is one of the inspirations that we can find, or confidence builders, not forgetting about how far we've come, even if this is your first retreat, looking to see how far you've come from the first day to now. And... I often look back and say, you know, it's like, wow, I have come a long way from a suicidal drunk having panic attacks and sort of hating everyone in me to where I am now, which is I can understand and release doubt in not too long of a time. (laughs) (laughs) The joy of understanding. The joy of understanding, recognizing my limiting ideas. And it's a surprise sometimes. It's a surprise and an inspiration sometimes when, when practice works through us. I mean, is this actually possible is what I heard from a couple of people today. Uh, this morning I, I talked about working with sleepiness. So I thought I would tell my sleepiness story for those who've heard it before, you know. Hang in there. Maybe there will be something new this time. This is one of those hindrances to to mindfulness that I suggested this morning we start practicing with. Turn toward it. Instead of thinking that it's going to be in the way, it's like while I'm sleepy, I can't practice. While I'm sleepy, uh, I don't have access to this path to actually use the turn toward the hindrance and use it as your object of meditation. Well, it took me many years to sort of get that. I'm sure that teachers told it to me over the years, but somehow it didn't go in. It just did not compute that I could be able to 
be practicing mindfulness and meditating while I was sleepy. And I was sleepy a lot. I mean, we got, have you been sleepy at all at this retreat? It was afternoons after lunch. I've sat a couple of tropical climate retreats where I'm sitting there, no air conditioning, the like limp fan going, touching you every like minute, and just feeling the sweat just dripping, dripping, so heavy sleepiness. And it was at one of these retreats in Maui, I believe it was, where it was so unpleasant, and it just like finally occurred to me, oh, this is not going away. I should probably practice with it. It so, and there's this way of turning toward with like full openness and curiosity that had been stopping me before. I had been looking at sleepiness over the years and I'd been seeing how it felt in my body. I'd noticed how it goes through in waves. I noticed how unpleasant it was. I noticed, you know, sort of where I'd feel it in my body and how it, what it did to my mind, but I couldn't break out of the spell of the unpleasantness and the aversion to it. This time, I did, somehow. Just turned toward it. It's like, okay, what is it? What are you? Okay, what are you? All right, all of my other strategies were failing. Finally, I come to just open, receptive, what are you? And then I saw another wave of sleepiness coming through my body, pretty concentrated at this point, so it's sort of slow motion. Sort of passed through my body, up through my head, and it was kind of crashed over my head like a wave. The only way I can describe it is like when you're surfing, and if you've ever surfed or anything, if you're on a surfboard, you're paddling out, and you're going through the waves as you paddle out, and you duck your head, and you go through, and the wave like breaks over your head, and you're out on clear water. That's what happened. The, the sleepiness broke. I broke through, or my mind broke through that wave, and on the other side of it was crystalline, pure, alert awareness, continuous awareness. And it was like, what now? What just happened? What just happened? I couldn't believe that. A moment ago, I had been thinking that if I, that this sleepiness was going to be around until I took a good long nap, that I'd always be dogged by sleepiness, that I'd never be a good meditator because I was sleepy all the time. I was fighting, fighting, fighting it. I had all these assumptions about the sleepiness. And then the skillful, wise awareness practice just destroyed them in a split second. It was like, okay, that's not what I think it is. That is not what I think it is. And you know, it's a fairly um, minor thing for that to happen. But, you know, that it's about sleepiness, who cares, in a way. But it was huge because it showed me that I couldn't trust my assumptions and that it was the believing in them that was stopping, halting everything. It was, my, it was just my, yeah, yeah, sleepiness is bad when you're meditating, right? Just in it. And then the other thing was um, that resistance to it. That's the other key. When we can find our way towards dropping the resistance and actually getting really authentically curious, that changes the whole game, and that is the path to awakening. In that moment, I was free. I was absolutely free, temporarily, free of the defilements. The cloth was purified. And that gave me a lot of confidence in the path.
Sadhu Tejaniya says, when there is faith or confidence, effort will arise. Something like that happens, boy, I really wanted to practice. I was really practicing well the rest of the retreat. When there is effort, mindfulness will become continuous. When mindfulness is continuous, stability of mind will become established. When stability of mind is established, you will start understanding things as they are. When you start understanding things as they are, faith will grow stronger. When faith or confidence, when there's faith or confidence, effort will arise. So you see how there's this feedback loop. These are the five spiritual faculties and how they lead one to another. We need faith. We need confidence to be able to rouse the effort. That's why doubt is the worst hindrance because it totally undercuts. You have no desire to make an effort, right? So we need faith or confidence. How can we find it? Okay. One more Buddha story that has inspired me greatly. How the Buddha came upon this middle way, this middle path of practice, you know, that we are all doing here at this retreat. The middle way is neither indulging in experience nor avoiding experience, but practicing the path, the middle way, becoming mindfully aware, learning about it, meeting it with uh, compassion, kindness, metta, and so on. He came upon that insight because he himself had like tried um, before his awakening. He had, you know, on his spiritual path, his, his path of seeking, he had um, tried all kinds of different um, meditation techniques, concentration techniques that were popular at the time. And um, all, they, all, some of them had to do with self-mortification, and, uh, you know, like, there's a whole list of them in one of these suttas, crazy stuff, uh, like, you know, walking over glass and holding your breath as long as you can and, uh, like, mortifying the body, you know, uh, not allowing yourself any sort of pleasures and eating very, very little. The story is that he was down to eating one grain of rice a day. One grain of rice a day. And, you know, he was really committed, so he went for it. But he saw that his body was wasting away, that he had no energy to practice, and that it was actually undercutting his efforts. He said, I can't keep doing this one grain of rice a day thing. I think I'm going to die. And that's not the answer. And so, <laughs> and so he was, you know, sitting there in his kind of depleted state, kind of hopeless, going, what, what should I do? And suddenly this uh, memory spontaneously occurred to him of when he was a child. When he was a child, a little boy, before he ever entered any path of practice at all. And he was sitting in the fields, his father's fields, the farm, underneath the rose apple tree. Underneath the rose apple tree. And he, at the, in that, when he was sitting under there as a little boy, he had this sort of spontaneous release into samadhi, into presence, into uh, a concentrated, easeful, effortless state of awareness with wisdom in it 
the wisdom that understood the interconnection of all things. That the worms were in the earth helping the crops to grow and the people were in the fields growing the crops. And, you know, and the, he just sort of saw this big mind. He dropped into it as a boy. And he felt the incredible happiness and peace of that state. And I don't know, maybe some of you have had experiences like that in your life, where you've just sort of spontaneously dropped into this feeling of being connected with things, belonging, um, you know, um, one with nature, however you want to put it. It's that kind of state. And so he realized that the happiness that he was looking for and questing for as a spiritual seeker was natural to us, was natural to us, because even an untrained little boy could find it in a moment. And so he stood up, he got up, and he ate a bowl of rice, a whole bowl of rice, (laughs) after that insight, saying, you know, I need to eat, I need to nourish this body. Now I know where I'm going. I'm trying to find this natural state of awareness. How can I get there? What's in the way? And that became the, the next part of his path of seeking, that he was inventing himself, leaving the old uh, 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 teachings you know, of his time behind and forging his own path that led to his awakening and his teaching of the middle way. So I find that so inspiring that not just for him, not just for that man, the Buddha, but for all of us, you know, freedom is not far away. We don't have to kill ourselves looking for peace. It's really more of a a relaxation and surrender process and seeing what's in the way and letting go. Um, Again, defilement's just temporary visitors to the mind. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up with this Last story of finding trust and faith in the path, as well as in what we might call the design of things that the Buddha awakened to as a little boy, the design of things, how we are all interdependent and that there is, you know, peace and happiness to be had just by being in it. And this was a lesson that my mom gave me, and I hope that I don't... I'm, I'm offering this with great joy, and I really hope that I don't um, upset anyone because I'm going to tell a story about how she passed away. Um, and, and it's interesting to to reflect on this because the way that I... Uh, handled and related to my dad's death and my mom's death 10 years later were quite different. And what happened, there were, you know, I had different relationship with each of them, but really the main condition that changed was my 10 years of diligent practice in between. My whole perception about death and impermanence had changed because of my practice. By the time that my mom passed away, 
my dad, I was so resistant. I just did not. I was so in denial. I hated that he was dying. I, and my grief lasted for years and years. You know, it was a good teaching for me how, you know, about impermanence that the more you hold on, the more you suffer. So with my mom, there was more, it was more like presence. I, I was able to feel the, the natural movement of life. In, in this dying process that she was going through. And I, I wrote something about it later. I hope you don't mind that I read because it's more articulate than what I could say right now. Her muscles have cramped. And, and by the way, my mother had dementia. She had Alzheimer's. And this is, of course, the very end stage of, of her disease. She was bedridden by this point. <clears throat> Her muscles have cramped and shortened these last few weeks, freezing her into a fetal position. I and the lovely caregivers from Eritrea, the birthplace of humanity, turn her every few hours to lie on her other side, knees bent, arms bent, the posture of the womb. I watch my mother's eyes turn inward, and I feel her slow, halting descent like a feather in still air. When her eyes come out of that inward gaze and register what's around her, what's happening to her body, they say, fear. Her milky blue eyes catch mine, then float around the room, her expression changing like clouds. Fear, curiosity, pain, calm. In this way, too, she's like a baby, languageless now, and forgotten all she once knew. The intellect has been set aside displaced by the brain plaque, and another process is taking the reins, a beneficent process, the one that lovingly made her from blood and ovum, now breaking her down with the same loving care. I can see it when she turns inward. I can sense the warmth, the breadth, the magnitude of that place inside, outside, no distinction, this process of transformation she's releasing to in waves, ebbing out, drifting back. Two days before her passing, Mom wants to get out of bed and sit up in her wheelchair. My brother has made a rare visit, his first in five years, and I think she's making an effort for him, her boy or husband, brother or father, whoever this man unpacks to her in her mind. She's happy. She slurps from the proffered spoon her favorite vanilla pudding. She smiles toothlessly, and to her, it's just this, just now. But for us, imagination takes hold. Maybe she's rallying. Maybe she has more time. Oh, how we resist the dark pull. But Mom knows resistance is not the way. Through the long, humiliating course of her illness, she has learned the art of surrender. This is her last best counsel to me. I know I should have taken typing. I know I shouldn't have left those perfectly fine men looking for somebody better. She was right about so many things. And now she's teaching me how to die. That it's safe to die. That even without a thinking mind, what some might call our humanity, you can die and find your next grace. When she turns inward for the last time and the life disappears from her body, my own body shakes and wails as I bend over her still one 
and the women from Eritrea rub the small of my back and pray. My body sobs because it's just witnessed the shocking finality of death. But there's something else happening in me too, a calm and knowing watchfulness, untouched by grief, recognizing the truth and the need for all this, and feeling the great, vast beneficence. In this moment of my mother's passing, the longing of life to know itself has been answered. It's one of those rare gifts, like the gift of life, that can never be repaid. So I think I'll leave it at that. And I offer that for your reflection. Thank you so, so much for your kind attention. And... Um, what is your inspiration? What inspires you? What inspires you? That's going to see you through. That's going to give you the confidence to keep going, even when it's hard, even when we forget. So let's sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.